Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of React Roundup. Today, we have Thomas Aylock as our panelist. Hello. I'm Lucas Reis, uh, your host for the day. And we have Zain Sajat as our guest. Hey. One of the things that I have as a goal for devchat.tv is to cover technologies that are up and coming, things that we're probably going to have to deal with on a more regular basis in the future. Some of these include AI, VR, and one of them is blockchain. So I reached out to one of the experts that I knew, Gregory McCubbin, and we pulled together a few other people and we've started a podcast called Adventures in Blockchain. So if you're looking at blockchain as something that you may want to work in, something that you're curious about learning more about, or something that you just want to keep current on until you have the opportunity to make a career jump and go over and work in blockchain and crypto, then definitely check out Adventures in Blockchain. You can find it at adventuresinblockchain.io. So first of all, let's start by asking you like your, about your background. How did you become a developer and what have you been up to lately? So I started from my university and it was a traditional computer science graduation degree. While I was graduating, I started working at uh, GFK Eagleize, a product data company. And uh, I started my career as a front-end developer. And currently, I'm leading the team of uh, front-end developers here at Peekaboo Guru. So we are a very React-centric company. We work on React.js on our web interfaces. And we work with React Native on our mobile interface. Okay, good. So you're using multiple Reacts everywhere. So that's interesting. Why did you choose? It's your company, right? Yep. Oh, all right. So uh, you 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 were there when all the main decisions were made. So why was React chosen? The best part about uh, React was uh, its its composability, the component architecture that it had. Another charming part was uh, its ability of code reusability. So the code reusability part was uh, quite cost effective for us, keeping in mind that uh, you can share a lot of business logic across your uh, platforms. I mean, you write business logic for web, iOS, and Android. Same point of time, you just have to write different view layers to support different platforms. So uh, it was the major reason that we opted for React, and uh, thankfully, we are just loving that decision till date. That's interesting. And how much uh, in practice do, do you actually share between your React and React Native applications? Uh, I, I write about it uh, a few days back. Um, we, we follow the container presentation uh, architecture in our applications. So uh, the container is part where your Redux store and uh, different, um, you know, API level uh, stuff that all resides in, in containers. So most of your business logic is there in your containers. And those containers are same across web, Android, and iOS. So they are written in plain JavaScript. And you can share that code. So uh, every time you write a container, a proper functionality that's available across platforms, and now our platform developers or view layer developers just has to care about uh, the logic that's going to be related to, you know, that's quite coupled with the view part of our application. Sorry to interrupt, but like, what do you mean by a container exactly? Because like, there's a million different, I mean, I'm assuming you're not talking about Docker. Uh, no, 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 that, that's not the Docker part. I mean, uh, Dan Abramov uh, write about it uh, long ago in 2015 when React was quite new. And we started our company around that time. So I found that uh, pattern quite interesting. It's more like uh, your, what you'd call it, your functionality part or your data part that resides in your Redux store. 
and the logic around that a redux store and everything is written into a higher order component or a hook now that is separated but totally out of view layer so all of your view based components are not connected to redux in fact none of your uh, view layer uh, components are connected to redux so only your containers are connected to redux and container supply data to your view layer components gotcha so the so the, the containers the... fetch the data container supply the data and view layer has to use that data so like the most of the actual views that you're using are like dumb views that are just like completely just regular old react or react native views that with yeah. nothing fancy going on yes and everything fancy is you know actually gone into the container part and that container part is shared across the platforms cool all right so that works for maybe 98% of the application logic we have and of course when we talk about native and web we always start stumbling on the part that we talk about the navigation routing and navigation because these are probably the parts that are like fundamentally different on the two yeah so and yeah. you have a, a really good uh, post on comparing two approaches for react native navigation but one step back like how how do you think about these differences when uh, like in your mind as a mental model how do you make sure that everybody is on the same page when you're thinking about routing and navigation between mobile and web we actually keep uh, the platform oriented stuff quite separate i mean uh, your containers are independent of routing or your containers are independent of anything that is related to uh, to platform mm-hmm. for example you have different ways of asking for permissions across platforms right so you ask mm-hmm. uh, for permissions differently on react native as compared to how you ask for permissions on on web mm-hmm. uh, we just keep that platform oriented stuff separated out of containers and uh, so there are three parts you have your components you have your containers and then you have your platform that platform actually platform directory contains the modules that uh, implement everything that is related to platform so if a library for example you are using a react native geolocation service let's take an example of a geolocation or permission so you won't be importing any of your react native dependent library inside your containers right so your container can only contain javascript that's it nothing dependent upon platform and everything that's dependent upon platform goes into the platform directories and platform modules actually when it comes to routing you have a different router uh, inside your platform directory and uh, for react native it might be react native navigation or react native navigation thing and for uh, react on web it might be react router So it it's more like that keeping your platform outside of your containers just to keep your containers more isolated. Mm-hmm. Does that help with testing? Uh yep, that helps with testing a lot because uh you know, you are testing it in a chunks. When it comes to unit testing, it it's quite uh, simple, but when it comes to integration testing, yeah, you have to do a little bit of, you know, up and down and think up a little bit outside of the box at times to yeah. you know, make sure that things are working together fine. This is a, a very interesting uh, topic because depending on, on your project, you put like the React router components and logic so like intricated in your application. Uh, like you can do like almost like routing-based uh, state management, right, for, for a lot of applications, but then you end up like relying on your platform a lot. It seems to me that on React Navigation, it's it's a similar situation, right? Like, 
it's really easy to, to, to make your code logic very dependent on the way the navigation is being done. And sometimes people say that it, it should be the way things should be done because it will, will feel more natural to the end user when you, when you embrace it. So it's a, it's a really tough trade-off to, to, to solve, right? Yeah, but, but I, I think uh, keeping things uh, platform dependent uh, takes the benefit of React out of it. The main line of React was uh, learn once and write everywhere. And I feel that a write once and run everywhere is the better thing. So, you know, you have to be cost-effective in startup and everything. It makes you uh, feel better when things are isolated nicely. Uh, so our web team is more focused towards optimizations that done, that's done on web. And mobile teams are more focused towards mobile uh, platforms and everything. While the business logic team is mostly concerned about how APIs are written, what responses are we are getting, what is what uh, requests we have to send. So you know the, these three teams are work in isolation and then integrated together whenever required. So it, it, it's it's really a, a fun experiment that we did and uh, it's working really fine right now. Nice. So I'm gonna go deeper on the mobile part. So the mobile app part. Okay. So I am creating a iOS app with you, and then mm-hmm. we reach the, the the moment where we need to to use either React Navigation or React Native Navigation. So what you wrote a really good post on that. So what what are your thoughts on on that on that choice? How would you navigate through that choice? Uh, okay, so uh, we uh, actually have two different products uh, in our system as well. Uh, one is uh, more towards our B2C side, and it's, our, it's our consumer app. And the other part is uh, the solution that we sell to B2B um, vendors, our vendors actually. So we use a React Native navigation on our B2C platform and React navigation on our B2B platform. Mm, uh, interesting. Yeah. So uh, the re- the reason was that React Native navigation doesn't allow you to integrate it uh, with existing native apps. So if you are using React Native navigation, you have to you know uh, you can only use it with React Native apps. Whereas for our solution that is for B two B part, we develop it on React Native, but that's a plugin that is being integrated with the native apps. Mm. So that's a good point. So to use React Native Navigation there. I still believe after working uh, for the past three years with React Native that React Navigation is, is an awesome library. And, uh, you know, the, the pattern it has and uh, the developer experience it has is uh, quite good. You know, you don't have to dive a lot more towards the native side and it's quite easy. Plus, the community it has is much larger than the community of React Native Navigation. I personally feel that because the people working on uh, React Navigation are, you know, most of them are working directly with React or working with the, with the teams that, uh, with, you know, they have very close relationship with the teams at Facebook. So they have that mindset. And plus, uh, you know, they, uh, they encounter a lot of uh, different cases. They run their own company. And uh, I mean, mainly callstack.io, name them here. But uh, they are, you know, people working at callstack work for different companies. They develop a lot of solutions to have. They have a big horizon to think about. I feel that React Navigation is an awesome uh, library if your app is not too big. I mean, the problem that I faced while working with Peekaboo 
guru, that are B, B2C part, it's a huge app. I mean, it has a number of screens. It has a number of complex UI screens, actually. So we have a lot of tabs, a big list and everything. So you just cannot put that all into single, you know, fragment as it was done previously in React Navigation before okay. React Native. So, so I guess that you're starting to, to answer the, the obvious question. You said all these wonderful things about React Navigation. So like, why would you ever consider even thinking about React Native Navigation if the other one's so great? The point that made me switch, uh, I, we started Peekaboo Guru with React Navigation. And after developing for around three months, while we were very close to our launch, uh, we were quite close to our launch, but uh, I decided to move towards React Native Navigation. The problem that I was facing uh, at that point of time was when uh, we had a stack of around 20 screens, keeping themselves one on top of other, and the screens that were behind were quite complex. I mean, you have a listing screen, a very yeah. large list. Then you have a camera view on top of that. Then you have a map view on top of that. And then you have a very complex detail screens and all that stuff. After, I mean, 10, 12 screens, it started to, you know, slow down overall, especially oh, yeah. on devices that were very small. Because we live in the region where uh, you don't have a lot of users with high-end devices. So you have yeah. to focus on things that, you know, you have to support all the low-end devices and you have to be very good at low-end devices. So at that point of time, we realized that React Native Navigation uh, is a better choice when you have a big app with a very complex UI. Since then, I mean, we opted for React Native Navigation, no doubt about that. But since then, after uh, recently, React Navigation uh, got the support of React Native Screens. And React Native Screens and React Native Reanimated has brought a lot of change to React Navigation. And that change is quite positive. I mean, now you are dividing your screens into fragments and all that optimization that you required earlier. Uh, yeah. That you, know, you used to get with React Native Navigation, you are getting them from uh, React Na- Navigation right now. So uh, coming up, if I ever get a chance to uh, move back to React Navigation, I'll do that for sure. If I'll get a chance to do a little bit of revamp or a big refactor of our product, then mm-hmm. I'll, 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 I'll always select React Navigation because the way it has been progressing for a long right now is amazing. And uh, they are doing a really great job. And I feel um, that that's the best solution for navigation right now. But I think partly one of the, the major advantages of having multiple libraries is the competition really makes both libraries better overall. Yeah, that, that, that's what actually uh, the, the thing is. I mean, React Navigation uh, progressed because a lot of, uh, I mean, they, they both complement each other. The developer experience of React Navigation actually demands from React Native Navigation to make it better make itself better and the optimization part and all that a part of leveraging the platform performances thing makes uh, React Navigation better and demands them to do a lot good in what they are doing. The competition is always healthy and I, I feel that uh, the, both of these libraries are backed by very good companies. React Native Navigation has a VIX, has VIX behind it and React Native Navigation is uh, React Communities. I mean, they are uh, also very good. Uh, they have very good it is the Feder Nadal Djokovic effect. The people, <laughs> yeah, in the the tennis world, people say that they are they are now like the first three the, the the three best players in tennis today, which are Feder Nadal and Djokovic. People are saying that they are probably like the best, the three best ever. 
And people say that that's probably because they are like playing at the same time. The fact that the the other two are always there, it's pushing them, the, the three of them, like in a way that, that it, you know, like sometimes if you are as good as one of them and you, and you end up to be in the world in a moment where there's not that much, you know, competition, you're, you, you're so yeah. much better than, every, than everyone else. You just need to be better than the second place, right? That's where yeah. tennis is such a, a, a <laughs> good sport for that kind of improvement where you really only get better if you're playing against somebody that's really, really good. With a lot of sports like golf, you know, you're really playing against yourself just at the same time as everybody else. It's hard to... <laughs> That's interesting. Since you were working with both of the, the navigation libraries simultaneously, you could much more easily compare them kind of apples to apples style. And you could see precisely where, the, where one would be better for one use case versus another. Sometimes it's just really hard to make decisions like this I mean, now you've, you've made that decision. It's, it takes a lot of time to go and, and revisit that decision, make that decision again. So what like lessons can you take away or what general guidelines would you recommend for making big team-wide dis- team decisions like this? Just before you answer that, this is a really interesting observation, Thomas. And first of all, the first trap that, that I always see when thing, it's like when you are in a company that has a legacy app, with one framework and like a, the the new version, the yeah. new cool app yeah. with the, with a new framework, and the new app is almost always much better than the previous. You usually t- tend to think that it's because the new framework is better. Yeah, but it's defined better. Uh, usually, it's because the, the the legacy app is in a pretty bad shape, no matter what. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So, in fact, th- this experiment to to like start in a, in a similar time frame is a uh, is is really rare. But probably that that would be the the only way to actually try to compare. But saying yeah, now now you can answer. How do you do it? How do you compare? Lessons okay. learned. I, I I personally feel that uh, this depends upon the requirements that you have uh, on on your card. I mean, if you need multiple routers, uh, if you have a flow, your uh, app has number of different modules not dependent upon each other and disconnected. For example, our B2B part had uh, six modules, six totally different modules. And, you know, it all had a different functionality in all that part. So we need a different number of routers and all that stuff. And multiple routers are not supported very much, you know, and very intuitive uh, way uh, from developer experience perspective. So, and in that case where you have uh, a requirement of multiple routers, I feel React Navigation is as good at that part. That part. Plus, uh, if you have uh, a big, big uh, number of screens, a large number of screens and with a very complex UI, then I feel that the native navigation is something that you have to go towards because it leverages the platform more than React navigation. So if you have a team, uh, another part is React navigation might you know require a little bit of native experience, or especially from the boot up perspective. Starting up uh, upfront when you are starting a new project, you always keep in mind that what expertise you have in your team and. Uh, you know, how much time these libraries used to take when you start integrating them. 
So React navigation is quite fast at that part. They have very good documentation. Both of them have very good documentation, but, but um, when it comes to React na navigation, you don't need a lot of, you know, tickles and a lot of, uh, you know, you don't have to do a lot with the native side of your app. You just need to do things on the JavaScript side. But on your native navigation, you have to do a little bit on the native part as well. So that at times, you know, hurts you if you don't have native expertise at all in your team. Yeah. With the, the human dynamics, that's where it starts to get really complicated. Because you, you find that some people will just by default always want to pick the new thing, whatever it is, whether it's better or not. And then other people will always want to pick the, the known thing, whether it's better or not. It's hard to kind of break away from our own kind of internal biases of either wanting to go to something new or wanting to stay with something old. And how do you force yourself, especially as a team, to be objective and to make an objective team-based decision instead of just, it's actually you're just basing your decision on some internal emotion that you're blind to? and. <laughs> I would term it more as uh, coming out of your com comfort zone. Actually, you have to step out of your comfort zone to make better decisions. So we actually go into that comfort zone if we keep on working. I mean, in my previous company, I was working with Angular and I was, you know, to begin with, it was very tough to, to switch towards React from Angular. Because, yeah, you know, you, that's a big change. Yeah, you get to attach to frameworks as well. You get to attach libraries as well. So uh, the, the best thing I, I would say is... Uh, you know, a tendency of a person to adapt to a change. Make sure that your team realizes that uh, our personal emotions and our personal comfort zone is not important than what's better for the team. And eventually, if you work as a team, you grow as well. So keeping in mind that uh, product matters rather than what I think. And um, I have to think for uh, the team rather than thinking for myself. So it, it's about being selfless and think yeah. of uh, perspective. And um, that, that will help you make this decision, uh, make I'll, any decision. Yeah. Easier I'll, said than done. Now. <laughs> I've been thinking so much about it. And today I uh, th there's uh, one thing that, that I'm thinking. It's because this also like happens a lot when you're like code reviewing, right? Sometimes you have like one opinion and say like, oh, I think this should not be done this way. And the other person say like, I think it should. <laughs> and and it's yeah. it's it's like a smaller scale, yeah, a smaller scale of that. And today I'm starting to to look at the skin of the game lens. Who has skin of the game wins, yeah. usually wins. You know, it's like, is this decision I'm making, am I going to be the one that will do the maintenance? Yeah. You know, like if someone wants to change a lot of things, but they're just like stopping by and they'll leave tomorrow, and now <laughs> we have yeah, yeah. I usually try to to go towards no, even if it if it seems really cool. Like uh, I'll say like, oh, so I'm doing the maintenance, you know. So are you doing the maintenance with me if we if we go this this way? Yeah. And and the same way on the other on the other end, sometimes uh, we do code review for projects that are not owned by us. We can give like a list of opinions, but if the person doing the maintenance say like, I I don't think I should do this way, I'm the first one to say like, of course. You don't need, like, you have the skin in the game. You know, I'm giving, like, my feedback. You, Since you you were the one doing the maintenance, you, you get it and do whatever you want with it. But I'm usually going with that uh, thing in my mind. So uh, being a leader of a team, if you are 
far from the team. Sometimes we, we are like managers and stuff. The first thing I would say, like, okay, so these are the people who are going to do the maintenance. So, of course, if they choose a technology and I do not agree, it's like probably should go towards more their opinion and, this, and things goes on. So we need to be careful. The problem with the hype-driven development, which is like the last thing that was tweeted by your favorite Twitter personality, is only a problem if you're not going to do the maintenance, if you're not going to be around for the next three or six months with yeah. that. The, so, the flip side of that, though, is sometimes we can kind of ban ourselves or stop ourselves from giving good feedback because, well, I'm not the one maintaining this or like I might not, there might be some conflict here. So let me just hold back. I've been working on trying to find the balance there because I remember earlier on in my career, I was the person of like, let's change everything and then bye. (laughs) And that's obviously not okay. Mm -hmm. And then later on in my career, I learned, you know, when to pick my battles, but then I started to pick fewer battles and I was just like sabotaging myself of like, I really, really care about this, but like, well, let's just, you know, for team unity and I don't want to cause any conflict. And I ended up causing more conflict in the long term by keeping my mouth shut on important things that I should have stood up for. So now I'm trying to pick my battles of, of like, I have to, to keep my own internal standards, but I also have to keep team standards and, you know, balancing that is really tricky. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's the case. I mean, uh, this also helps in, in growing. I mean, uh, it's not just about keeping balances, but as a developer, uh, I was reading a few days back that what, what's the bad, what are top five bad habits uh, that a developer can have? And one of them was that uh, I'm always right. So I know the most. And uh, the day you realize that uh, you know the most is the day that you are going towards your end. Uh, The thing that Steve Jobs said, I think, if you are the smartest person in the room, then leave the room. (laughs) (laughs) If you you feel that you are the smartest in the room, then you are an idiot to stay in that room. So just, just, you know, move away from that room now and go into the room where you are not the smartest. And if you feel that you are not the smartest, then you have to, you know, actually respect the opinions that others have. Others have. That, that will also help you grow and that will make you better in the, in the longer run. Yeah, it is difficult. Also, easier said than done. It's really tough to, to, to have your ego checked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've seen people who felt like the smartest person in the room left every room and ended up being by themselves because they were too smart for all rooms until they learned some humility. (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. 
this discussion we've been having, it's all around like how do we choose a library? Seems to be something so simple, but it's such a layered decision. Such a, it's like I understand why someone like who is a junior dev entering the the market may feel overwhelmed with those things. It is overwhelming. There's no mental framework for that's easy. There's no like, oh, answer these seven questions and it'll give you a library. It's so many like technical. You're talking about like really specific technical issues and at the same time soft what they call soft skills right like how do you deal with the team and 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 the community around the 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 open source tool man things can get crazy but yeah that's our profession we chose it (laughs) it chose me i wanted to be a designer (laughs) this is something that differs you from uh, being a junior and a senior person more experience you get, uh, the, the better you get at it. I mean, uh, just like Thomas said that initially he had a mind, mindset. I had a similar one, uh, no doubt about, about that. So I used to argue in every system that we had in our first company. And now I realize that you don't have to argue all the time. So you just have to hear it <laughs> because that system is actually running. So, I mean, this is what differs and, you know, bisects actually the experienced people and uh, the newbies in the system. Nice. So I have uh, one other question for using a similar topic, but we as uh, front-end developers, right? Sometimes we look at our our back-end friends. A lot of times I look at them and I say like, thank God I'm a front-end. A lot of times I look, (laughs) (laughs) I look and think like, yeah, I wish I had some, some, some of, some of that. And one of the things that I think a lot of front-end people are feeling lately is the machine learn stuff yeah. and it seems that you've been working with a lot of machine learn in the front end layer so yeah. i don't know if you're working with your company or on side projects could you tell us a little bit more about that yeah we are working a, a quite interesting project in our company as well we have a review section in our b2c app and we are you know having a big release of um, you know a big revamp of that review section and we are bringing a lot of good uh, features to that reviews part. So we are changing how you give reviews about food and everything, all that mm-hmm. stuff, making it all the AI and the, uh, filters to photos and all that stuff. And first, I'll answer about that backend and frontend stuff. Uh, I personally feel that both of these fields have their own charms. Uh, grass is always greener on the other side. So <laughs> when you're standing on this side, you feel that I have developers here in my company, you feel you are. And their time comes to you and say, uh, uh, you guys have a lot of good idea about JavaScript. You guys have a lot of good idea about Bebo and all that stuff. And we used to say, see, guys, you are we're talking about uh, Elasticsearch's new version. And uh, you are thinking about <laughs> scalability and all that stuff. So, you know, it's just about solving a good problems. So either you are on the back end or you are on the front end, either side, you you know, you always feel good if you solve a good problem. Yeah. So that that's the key in software, I believe. And uh, thinking about machine learning part, I feel um, that machine learning on the edge is something that holds a lot of significant in significance in future. Because on the edge, like what what does that mean? Basically, that means uh, doing inferences of your model on the mobile devices. Or okay, on what does that, all of that mean? Like, what? Okay, so... 
so uh, just just think of that uh, you want to check for the nudity of an image that is about to be uploaded, right? Okay, so, so no nudity photos on my uh, you know, on my food reviews. Like, food exactly. reviews, got you, it. You don't want porns in your restaurants reviews. No. So only food you porn. Want to check that every photo that is being uploaded into your system has to uh, follow certain criteria, right? And um, uh, there are two ways of doing it. You upload a photo on uh, on a server, and then you run a nudity check there on server and respond to your client that, see, we just cannot upload this photo into our system, right? On the other way is you just do all this uh, nudity check on the client's device. Why the hell you want to spend uh, Interesting. your uh, cost management? Why don't you have to spend a lot of amount on your servers? So server is going to cost you. You have to, you know, bear if anyone wants to destroy you, he or she will start uploading a number of photos from here and there, and that will keep on, you know, adding to your cost, right? right. So you have a very strong uh, mechanism on your front end, on your mobile device, or on your web, you can just stop that image there. You so that's possible? Yeah, that's possible. I, I, I wrote a small blog, and a lot of companies are, you know, spending a lot of amount in this, actually. Uh, recently, TensorFlow.js launched for React Native. Before that, Microsoft is working with Onyx, and Onyx.js is available for browsers. TensorFlow.js is also available on browsers. There's a fantastic company called Fritz.ai. They are working with their SDK that works across the platforms. I mean, they have an SDK for Android. They have an SDK for iOS. Both of these uh, SDKs are amazing. They have a lot of pre-trained models that you can use. You know, they're doing a lot of good work, and... Besides it, it's, it's just about that this industry of mobile machine learning is growing. And, you know, you just cannot upload every photo to your servers to apply filters, right? Snapchat is doing a lot of mobile machine learning on their front end, on their mobile apps. Now, Facebook is doing a lot of it and a number yeah. of companies. Doing. So, you know, you have to give that offline uh, experiences to your users. And offline experiences comes with when you do machine learning on your edge devices, on your browser, from your mobile devices, on that. Oh, so. that's what you mean by edge. You mean like on yeah. the edge of like the edge between the human being and all of your services. Exactly. So you you know you are doing it all on the front end. That that's more you know, simpler. Either you are doing it on the browser or you are doing it on the mobile device. It's interesting to 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 think about it. I just realized that there's already a lot of machine learning happening on our phones that we don't think about, like in our. Uh, all our photo apps that are like trying to yeah. detect eyes or detecting smiles, this is functions running on our devices already, right? So you're just taking advantage of that computing power and running your own. Yeah, that's the thing. And a, a lot of big companies are investing into this. So I feel that and, and this this is something that, that's quite interesting arena for the people who feel that front-end is simpler or we don't have a very good thing to do at front-end. <laughs> so, well, yeah. We have a lot of good things to do. So one question uh, to you. So I want to start learn uh, machine learning. So imagine that I have someone with time in my life, which is probably <laughs> the... <laughs> yeah, I've been diving into TensorFlow lately. <laughs> Just learning the very basics of TensorFlow. Is that a good place to start? Where, what do you recommend? Yeah, that, that's a very good thing. I mean, uh, you have to divide that machine learning part into two things. I mean, using your models and doing inferences and all that stuff and how to, you know, perform these optimized 
you know, optimizing your operations of machine learning and uh, preparing your model and now using your models. You know, you have two different parts. You have to train a model and then you use that model. So the training part, uh, that requires a little bit of expert machine learning thing. I mean, you need to think of that mathematics and all that kind of stuff out there. No, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) So, well, uh, using the models and uh, making good applications out of machine learning and, uh, you know, handling your models smartly, dividing your models and, uh, you know, playing around with how to optimize the usage of your models and all that kind of stuff, that that comes mostly under the umbrella of front-end. When it comes to training and all that stuff, that uh, usually goes into, you know, you need hardcore machine learning engineers to do a lot good in that part. But again, being a programmer, you can learn anything. Agreed. <laughs> and it's, it's actually been way more approachable than I was expecting. You know, when I, I've been kind of noodling around with, with AI and machine learning on and off for forever. I'm obsessed with learning all new things, but it's just so much of it they've been talking about, like, you need all this advanced math in order to understand it. And the way people explain it, they're just like dressed in such a way of like, I can't understand a single thing that you're saying. They've got the chalk out and everything. Sure. And but lately, with, with the latest TensorFlow stuff, especially in Google I.O. 2019, they explained it in such a way of like, I get it now. Mm-hmm. And it, it's so much easier to just jump in and get started. Yeah. I did have to, you know, brush up on Python a little bit. but I believe that it's all, always related to, to how good the abstraction is. So like what information are you hiding or not? So you can think about, for instance, SQL, right? SQL, that there's a lot of... Uh, math behind why SQL works, right? But it's well abstracted to us that we don't need to to, to learn about unions or intersection of sets when we are using a (laughs) SQL database, right? So I think that TensorFlow did a a really good uh, thing that it's like they're abstracting. You don't actually need to know how specific models of neural networks they're using, how it works, right? Because it's well abstracted for you. Of course, if you're going like on the next step, if I am going to, to be a DBA, probably I need to, to, to go really deep on, sure. on the SQL theory. And if, if I'm going to create a database, I can't escape. So if I'm going to, to, to create new models, probably I can't escape the statistics or the linear that- algebra. So that's the thing. How, how well things are, are mm. abstracted for you Right. And what you need to use. That's a really good illustration of like, you know, comparing uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence to like a database. Like I'm not going to go in and create a new database and and do all this really, really advanced stuff. But I I use databases all the time. I'm pulling Mm -hmm. data from them. And it's like the database exists for the sake of the front end. And a lot of this machine learning AI stuff exists for the sake of what the heck can we use this for, which always touches the front end somewhere, somehow. So bringing this back to like React, Zane, what would you recommend for somebody that's just like a React person in the React ecosystem that wants to screw around with machine learning and AI in a way that actually might be applicable to them in the real world ever? Where would they start? The best thing that I learned in my university was during my first semester, uh, the teacher that we had said a sentence that that was quite nice that programming is something that is addictive and it has the addiction of success. So if you are getting a little bit 
if you are getting success you will keep on doing things and if you are not getting that success you'll you know you'll actually break down and go out so make sure that you keep your tasks small and keep on getting success the more success you get and the better you are so i feel that starting from inference part where you can start using already present models you can uh, pick up a model that you know tells that let's say let's start from example of nudity and stop people uploading uh, nude photos in your databases so start from that part you have a number of libraries you have keras.js you have tensorflow.js you have onyx.js a number of stuff uh, to learn right start learning these libraries for inference and just get a simple model executed on your browser day one see that you will get the results and you will have uh, you know when you click a photo the system will tell you see this is a bird or this is a plaza or this is a road or this is a car or whatever and once you start doing that inference part you, you will realize that now you have uh, a better idea of how models are executed what models are what you can do with them think of the application that will allow you to have a good enthusiasm a good idea of what next is for you and then pick up a small idea of doing thing and start training a, a model and that enthusiasm that part of success will allow you to you know uh, last a little bit longer that will give you a bit of a more passion that you have and eventually you will learn things that as thomas said a little bit earlier that there are a number of tools coming in that will allow you to you know skip that mathematical and algebraic part of the machine learning and all that stuff and you can just play around with the things and that playing around with things will uh, you know entice you to do things one thing that i would mention uh, if you want to learn a basic concepts of uh, neural nets and machine learning mpj who runs the fun fun function channel has a great video about a new he actually has a series of learning neural networks in javascript so if you are an mpj fan then this is something for you and if you are not you will be an mpj fan if you watched that those videos he, he explained it quite nicely you know he gets you into that part from very basic things and that's where uh, things start when you know you get that success part you just make a model who says that is it a day or a night uh, is it a one or two that's it nothing else and you start very small and then you you know yeah. keep on moving on so don't try to be a big ml engineer on the day 5 and make sure <laughs> that a very good time on the things and uh, you know you keep on progressing that's a really good point i think that's that kind of that principle is applicable everywhere of like failure equals trying to go from zero to perfect you're going to fail and yes. success equals success if you double down on success with little bits of success then you get addicted to that success which pulls you and accelerates you forward but if you just like trying to go zero to perfect you're just diving in just failure 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 you that's demoralizing we are human yeah, that's, that's that's the point so s- s- small steps always you know makes make you feel better you yeah. know that feeling of progress that feeling of success is always key and whenever you are not getting it i mean uh, the the irritation that programmers have and you are unable to solve a complex problem that's yeah. your toughest <laughs> and yeah 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 uh, The key to solve that problem is to break it down into very small chunks. You know, yes. if you break it down into very small parts, very tiny parts, eventually you'll small, you'll solve it. And if you keep on solving a big huge thing into single part, that that's not going to work out. And that's how, you know, uh, we used to solve our mathematical problems in our high school. 
Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think that's uh, a good moment to wrap it up and go to our picks. What What do you say, Thomas? Yeah, yeah, that's ending on a high note. Like I, I have to go think about that for the next six hours. That was really good. Yeah, it, it's interesting how we touch so many fundamental software engineering issues today. That's yeah. Math. I like starting with the specifics and then figuring out the the underlying principles at play. Yeah. But I just described uh, my personality. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite communities to get involved with these days is the Angular community. There are so many great people there. We've had a lot of them on Adventures in Angular over the last several years. And I really wanted to just highlight people and give you a chance to get to know the flavor and the feel of being around some of these awesome people. We've talked to people on the Angular Core team. We've talked to people who have organized the conferences. We've talked to some of the co-hosts that I've had on Adventures in Angular. Nowadays, Aaron Frost is running the show and he's doing the same thing. Typically, he's been doing it at conferences lately, which is a lot of fun. But you get to hear what these people are about and why they care and how they get involved with other people in the Angular community. So if you're looking for that connection in the Angular community and a way to really understand the people who are involved in the Angular community, then go check out My Angular Story. You can find it at myangularstory.com. All right. So Thomas, do you have uh, any picks today? Actually, my pick for today is not content. I know normally our picks are some Ooh. form of content, but mm-hmm. my pick for today is an actual like product and a, a tip. I've been trying to organize my life since my life began and failing. <laughs> and that when my my organization kind of turned a major corner was when I, A, started taking it seriously, and B, stopped trying to do ed- everything with technology, mm. with digital technology, that is. So I, I started carrying around like a, a physical notepad and a pencil to just jot down things that I keep failing to remember, things that I'm supposed to do, phone numbers, people's names. And the, the specific um, notepad that I'm using is called Right in the Rain. It's all weather tough. It's it's a, a notepad. It's one of those like, you know, three by five notepads with the spiral bound thing, but it's waterproof. It's waterproof paper. So I carry this everywhere I go. I'm caught in the rain. I take a shower. It goes through the laundry. It's fine. No way. Highly recommend. What, what do you mean? It, it's, that yeah, was... it's a paper notebook that is waterproof. <laughs> That's yes. amazing. We have it now. Amazing. In the future. <laughs> Non-reliant on technology thing, it's so true. The more I do software, the less I trust software. <laughs> it's like I, I'm yeah. I'm getting I'm getting to, to the phase where I barely trust electronics now. Make that thing mechanical and I'll start using like put a real lever <laughs> and I'll start <laughs> some gears. Yeah. Oh, you need batteries. I don't want it. <laughs> Because I know the programmers who made it, and they were late. Uh, oh, my God. Yeah, yesterday I could not have black pepper on my food because the electronic black pepper thingy oh, stopped working. That's too far. That's, when the electronics are stopping crazy. us from eating, that's... That's no. it, man. I just want the mechanical one, the usual one that you twist, and, and you get black pepper, and, <laughs> and that's it. It's going to be with me forever. Who thought a pepper shaker? Thank that you. needs to be more electronic. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's add seven layers of failure on this thing that works for 300 years. Internet of Things, uh, pepper shaker. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, imagine if I had a nap. Then I would really not, not trust it. Uh, 
Yeah, ML, some ML, like you did not put pepper in your, we won't, I'm like, I just, okay. So, all right. <laughs> so I have, I have two picks today. My first pick is very code related is uh, the Emer.js library. There are a lot of libraries that uh, in, when, I, when I work that it's like libraries that I want to use and there are libraries that make me think. So this is uh, Emer.js is a library that I want to use and makes me think. So this is a really good combination. It's even if you're not using or not in, or just do not intend to use it, it's a great documentation. So the documentation website is my pick for today. Go look how good documentation should what be. What is it? Uh, Emer.js is a library for front end uh, that that implements immutable. Data yeah. structures. Yeah. Oh. My second pick, it's interesting that we were talking about it today, but my second pick is a YouTube channel. So I've been uh, studying uh, probability and statistics uh, lately to try to, because I'm always trying to study one thing that I really do not understand. And this is uh, a YouTube channel that I came across. They don't talk a lot about probability and statistics, but it's a YouTube channel that is so good at talking about mathematical things and explaining so well with like beautiful visualizations. It's like uh, just, I don't know, like calculus. I don't know when was the last time I studied calculus, but I started watching their calculus videos explaining the stuff it's so beautiful visualization and his voice is really soothing. And I, and I really understood a bunch of the, <laughs> those things that I don't think I ever understood before. That's my second pick for the day. So Zane, do you have any picks you would like to share with us? No, I just wanted to share that we recently switched from immutable JS to Emer.js. Um, oh. Our project. So we used to, you know, work with immutable JS every time and mm-hmm. we switched to Emer.js. And it, it's wonderful to, you know, actually yeah. use a JavaScript thing rather than, you know, every time using a wrapper around. And, uh, you know, it, it feels quite good. It feels quite freshening. And another part that uh, you guys, you just mentioned a YouTube channel, 3 Blue 1 Brown. They also have a neural network playlist. And that playlist represents the neural network very nicely. Again, the visual that they have. Is amazing if you you know just uh, pick up that visual part of that neural network um, video, and that's a very good starting point for someone uh, who is coming new and who is coming fresh towards machine learning and AI part. Yeah, I recommend that part alongside that MPJ video. This will really help you to understand how new. Yes, yeah. If you want to understand understand what's happening uh, with inside TensorFlow, it's a really good like visualization. Yeah, really great yeah, what channel. What was that again? I guess I'll just look at the link in the description. Let me also put the link to the actual video that Zane is talking about, that it's uh, explaining neural networks visually really well and intuitively without going to the math. Okay, cool. Is that three blue, one brown? Yes. Cool. I'll check that out. Nice. All right. So I think this wraps it up. Thank you very much, Thomas. My pleasure. <laughs> Thank you nice very much, you. Zane. <laughs> All right. See you next week. Good night, everybody.
Goodbye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more. 